and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for uh, tonight. Thank you for the folks that have come out. Pray you'll bless us as we move on into our study of church history. We love you. Thank you for all you do for us and what you have for us, and we just love you now. And we praise you. Give us a good time tonight. Show us those things you have for us. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. Well, last time uh, we uh, finished the second half of the Pergamus church period. And uh, th that period of church history will, should always be an absolute uh, vital, important part of, uh, of your church history. That is a key player uh, in why things are the way they are. And uh, that is such a crucial point in history that you always want to mark that one and keep that uh, uh, before you. And we saw how that, you know, the name Pergamus means much marriage. We actually see now how that the, uh, uh, the devil uh, saw what was coming and he actually changed the whole concept of things to uh, uh, went from a, 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 a government to a religion and, uh, and then restructured the whole aspect. And we saw how that all happened through Constantine, the Council of Nicaea. That's really what we focused on last time. And we saw the beginning, uh, the official start of the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, if nothing else, when you come through this stuff, it really helps you sort out or be able to sort out history, uh, which is an absolute necessity in trying to figure it all out. Um, two of the greatest verses that I've, I've always built my church history around and, and followed through, and they really served me well. And you've heard me give them to you before. Uh, there are those two verses in Proverbs, and uh, Proverbs twenty two twenty eight is the first one, and that's where it talks about uh, remove not the ancient landmarks that the fathers have set, and that will be in connection with the nation of Israel. And if you want to, uh, uh, you know, if you want to find out where God is at and where the devil is at and what the main focus of history is in the Old Testament or ancient times, it'll be the nation of Israel. Greatest proof of that being true is the fact that if you'd go to Johnson Community College or any college anywhere and take a course on history or ancient history, the nation of Israel would hardly be mentioned. The devil has made sure that he has buried uh, the true aspect of what history really revolves around. Uh, you'd study the Egyptian kingdoms, you know, the early, late, middle dynasties. You'd study the Hittite Empire. You'd study the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and all of that you'd have absolutely no time uh, spent on, other than maybe just a few mentions of a few particles about it, about the nation of Israel. And yet, from God's standpoint, the whole Bible from the historical aspect of what God is doing from the ancient times is built around the nation of Israel. So it talks about the landmarks that the ancients have, the, uh, the uh, fathers have set. Those fathers will be the nation of Israel. Then the next chapter, Proverbs 23, uh, verse 10, uh, a similar verse that says, Remove not the old landmarks, uh, lest thou enter into the fields of the fatherless. And that brings us up to uh, what, our, what our New Testament history would be from the time of Christ up. And uh, we, uh, that, I always thought that was an incredibly uh, enlightening verse. Because uh, in the New Testament, if you want to find out what really is happening, then you've got to study the church. And uh, again, just as the devil has made sure in secular history that the nation of Israel is never given its proper place, 
He's also made sure that in church history that the true church has never been given its proper place. And you lose track of the true church in the New Testament times just like you lose track of the, old, uh, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament times. One of them may be secular history and the other one may be religious history or church history, <coughs> but that's what happens. And when you do that, and this is what all modern history is today, or all history is today, it's the fields of the fatherless. It's getting into a situation where you don't know who your father is historically. And uh, you're basically an orphan. And you have no roots, no history, no anything. And of course, this is why church history is absolutely crucial. And, and, and basically, church history, or history of the world for that matter, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, church history in the New Testament, they would be divided into two categories, would base, basically be... Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, follow the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, follow the true believing line of the church, and you'll find everything that you need to know about history because everything will be tied to that. And that is a foreign concept today, but that's why nobody can figure out what's going on in our own world today because they don't know what's happened. Now, we're going to enter today <clears throat> into our fourth period of church history. And it may seem like we're moving along fairly quickly, but boy, when we get into these next ones, we're going to be here a long time. Uh, there's just so much material. But we're going to study the Thyatira church period today. And uh, I want to begin reading here in Revelation chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 18. Now, here's what he said. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, right, these things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, uh, I have uh, a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, uh, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put uh, upon you none other burden. But that which ye have uh, already, hold fast till I come. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter they shall be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star, and he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, uh, the name Thyatira uh, means order of affliction. And it'll bring us up from about 500 to about 1,200 A.D., somewhere in there. And uh, it's the period of time that takes us into the Dark Ages. And last time we saw how that the Roman Catholic Church got started around 300, 400 A.D. By 500, it's up and operating in a very good form and then moved very quickly into the 
a power mode of taking over the whole world, uh, which it does through the Dark Ages, which we'll talk about. Now, uh, this represents what we call the great nighttime of Christianity. And uh, for years and years and years, it was called the Dark Ages. And then what happened was, is that that showed um, too much uh, bad light on the Roman Catholic Church because everybody knew that the Roman Catholic Church was in the force that was in power. I mean, that's just a history 101. And being called the Dark Ages, it was without a doubt the most repressive time in the history of mankind. And it showed too much bad light on the Catholic Church, so they changed it to what they call the Middle Ages. So you're going to hear it either way. Whenever you hear the Middle Ages, whenever you hear the, the Dark Ages, it's the same time period. I always thought it was interesting because uh, when you come through your Bible, you're going to have the church history is uh, church history is divided in uh, New Testament is divided into four watches. You see them up there: the first watch, the second watch, the third watch, and the fourth watch. And it goes to show you how people can't get around the Bible no matter what. They call it the Dark Ages because of the oppressiveness of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, people didn't like that, and so they wanted to change it so they could get out from under any co connection to the Bible or God or anything with the Roman Catholic Church, so they'd switch it to the Middle Ages. And when they did that, unknowingly, what they did was is they fell right in line with the Bible again because making those two, two periods of time, 500 to 1,000, the Middle Ages, if that's true, if it's the Middle Ages, and the Middle Ages run from Thyatira up to the end of Sardis, then if it's the middle, then you got to have one over here, which is the first, and then you got to have one over here, which is the last, because those two make up the middle. So what you just did was date the second coming of Christ and didn't even know it by calling it the Middle Ages. If it's the Middle Ages, then you got to have one before it and one after it, if that's the middle. And that's exactly what happened. So uh, again, you know, the Bible is always ahead of everything that goes on. But you're going to notice here that when we start to come down through chapter 2, we start to see a woman come in here, and that woman is in verse 20. And it says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, we know right out of the chute that this woman shows up right in the middle of the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church when it really gets its, its power base going. And this woman is called Jezebel. Now, come, take your Bibles and come on back here to uh, 1 Kings chapter 21. Now, you've heard me say it many, many times. I'm going to show you some examples tonight, and you want to get these in your Bible if you don't have them already. The reason why Jezebel shows up in uh, uh, Revelation chapter 2 with Thyatira is because Jezebel represents the Roman Catholic Church. She represents the religious prophetess. She's a female deity in the Old Testament. She is the prophetess of Baal, Baal being the sun god, and she is the wife of a wicked king of Israel, Ahab. And where Ahab represents the political structure of the Roman Catholic Church, 
and all that she does by aligning herself to nations politically. Jezebel represents the religious side, and she represents the religion itself. Now, I'm going to show you a place in the Old Testament that actually lays this. You've heard me tell you all the way through uh, everything uh, we've studied from Bible basics right on out, that everything that the devil wants and everything he's after is that land in uh, Jerusalem. We know that from our past studies that whatever took place back in Genesis 1-1 before 1-2, it had to do with Lucifer before he was Satan, and he had some kind of throne or dominion in Jerusalem. And uh, he lost that uh, when it all went to pieces, and he's been trying to get it back ever since. When God put Adam and Eve down, he put them right in that area, and the devil went after him. That land was given to the nation of Israel through Abraham, and what does the devil do? He tries to get it back every way he can, from the giants coming down in Genesis chapter 6 to take over the world, to Abraham getting Hagar and producing Ishmael to keep him out. Everything the devil's done is because he wants to get that land back. And that's why the crucial time in the tribulation period, as we've talked about many, many times, is when for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period that he gets Jerusalem, he goes in and he does what he has not been able to do since Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Sit back down on a throne in Jerusalem, that's where he originally was, and this time he claims to be God and demands the whole world to worship him. That's where it's going. Let me show you this in the Old Testament picture here with Ahab uh, and Jezebel. Now, this is a story in the Old Testament that you probably have read as you read through your Bible through. You've probably heard it many, many times. But uh, I'm going to put a whole new spin on it tonight once you understand who Jezebel and Ahab represent uh, in 1 Kings chapter 21. All right, here's what we got. Pick it up in verse 1. And this is exactly what we're studying now in church history. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house, and I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it. Uh, or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. Now here's what we've got. We've got Ahab. He's a type of the devil. We've got Naboth. He's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Naboth has a vineyard. That vineyard in the Bible will be the city of Jerusalem. Naboth has a vineyard that is his, that is his inheritance from his fathers. Ahab wants that vineyard for himself to be a what? A garden. Ah, wonder where the garden was back there when he went and got it from Adam and Eve. See, now watch. And Ahab came unto his house heavy and displeased because the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him for he said, I will not give thee uh, the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned his face and would not eat no bread. This is your great wah-wah chapter in the Bible. He's upset because he wants that vineyard. But Jezebel, ah oh yes, verse 5, paragraph mark. 
But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou hast eaten no bread? And he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else, I like that, or else, <laughs> if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, here's what you've got, basically. Ahab's a king, the devil. He wants the vineyard from Naboth, a type of Christ. He can't get it. So how does he get it? His wife comes in, Jezebel, the Roman Catholic, Baal worship prophetess, and she gets it for him. What we've got here coming into church history is a picture of the devil wanting Jerusalem, and he can't get it, so he goes into the religious form of the Roman Catholic Church, and the Roman Catholic Church, Jezebel, gets it for him. We're going to call it the Crusades here in a little while when we fight over it to get it that way. Let's go on. And Jezebel, his wife, said unto him, I'll pick it up in verse uh, 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent them letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in the city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters proclaiming a fast and set Naboth on high among the people and set two men, sons of Belial, okay? That's Old Testament name for the devil. Sent two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, then carry him out and stone him, that he may die. And the men of the city, even the elders and the nobles, who were the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them. And as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. And there came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God. You notice, have you picked it up yet? This is exactly what takes place in John chapter 19, Mark chapter 14, when they bring him before Pilate. And these are the same accusations that you get. Luke chapter 23, John chapter 19. Uh, you get the political side of it. You get the religious side of it when uh, at the first coming of Christ with Christ. Then they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, No, with his stone and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, for he refused to give thee for money, for both is not alive but dead. And it came to pass, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab arose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Uh, and then we go on down through there, and um, it just Ahab or uh, Elijah gets into the deal. Now here's what you got. That is a, exactly a picture in the Old Testament and a story of exactly what's happening. The devil wants the vineyard, that's Jerusalem, it belongs to Christ, Naboth, and he can't get it politically, so he's going to get it religiously. That's why back in the Old Testament with all the Baal worship, you always had a female deity, she's called the Queen of Heaven in the book of Jeremiah, and when the Roman Catholic Church takes over and comes up through this time period, from the open up into the Dark Ages, lo and behold, guess who you're going to find right in the middle of it, a female deity married a mother of God. And she's going to come right on the thing there, and Jezebel never misses a beat. And that's the story and the picture that you got.
And uh, when you come down through these Old Testament passages, uh, especially in the Old Testament with the, when you're dealing with the nation of Israel, they're all going to have a prophetic application to it. And you're going to find in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17 through 40, that uh, Jezebel has 400 prophets of Baal. You're going to find in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 28, as I said, that Abraham's, uh, Ahab's a type of the Antichrist. He's the type of the political system. And Jezebel, his wife, is a picture of Babylon, Mr. Religion, the mother of harlots. She's the great whore of Revelation chapter 17. That's why today uh, prostitutes, and maybe not today, but down through history, when somebody was stealing somebody else's husband or whatever the case, or it was, she was always called a what? Jezebel, where it comes from. First Kings chapter 19, uh, she chases Elijah, tries to kill him, just like she's going to do in the tribulation period in Revelation chapter 11. And in chapter 21, you see the picture of how Satan, uh, through the religious and political system, is going to get Jerusalem. And everything is right there for you. And that's why Jezebel shows up in Revelation chapter 2, right in the middle of this church period of church history. And it says about her, it says, uh, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou suffest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication. That'll be spiritual fornication. And to eat things sacrificed unto idols. That'll be the, that'll be the, uh, the host that uh, uh, every Roman Catholic takes on, on, at Mass and eats that wafer. And that wafer is dedicated to, in their terms, God, but in the Bible's terms, idols. And, of course, that's exactly what, and all this comes into being during this time period. Verse 21 says, uh, And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. That space would have been about 325 A.D. to 500. And uh, God gave her a chance to get it turned around, and she didn't. And so verse 22 says that, uh, uh, Behold, I will cast her into a bed with them that commit adultery, and with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And, of course, the doctrinal application here will be the great tribulation that we know of, uh, that we study all the time, historically, prophetically. Uh, it'll be the tribulation uh, of the time period that they go through with all that they have to deal with. And um, you'll find that this woman, this Jezebel, is found again in Proverbs chapter 5, Proverbs chapter 2, and Proverbs chapter 7. And uh, we, talked about, uh, we talked about the Ahab and we talked about um, Jezebel. Now, let me show you something else here. Come back to Proverbs chapter 2. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, in verse uh, 22, where it says, Behold, I will cast her into bed, and them that commit adultery with her. Is that the them that commit adultery with her? Is that some, some of the other re- religions that play in with her? It'll be every, if you go back over to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, it lists not only the other religions, but all the nations. So it's everybody that buys into the Roman Catholic Church as the true religion. Yeah. All right, look over here in Proverbs chapter 2. Now, 
the book of Proverbs, the book of Song of Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, and the book of Psalms are your wisdom books in the Bible. Now, why are they called the wisdom books? Two reasons. The first reason it's wisdom books because that's where you and I go to really figure out who God is because in those books is everything that you need to know about God and who he is and just about everything you need to get on a root fundamental level to figure everything out in the Bible. But it's also called the wisdom books because it gives you wisdom uh, or, or it gives the nation, in a historical sense, it, it gives us wisdom or them, Jews, the Jews wisdom on dealing with Two identities found in the Bible. Now look at chapter 2, verse 10. When wisdom entereth into thine heart, and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul, discretion shall preserve thee, understanding shall keep thee, to deliver thee from the way of the evil man, from the man that speaketh froward things, who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness." Now, that evil man, wherever you find him in Proverbs, is going to be doctrinally the Antichrist or, in our case study, Ahab, okay? So you're going to find this evil man popping up all the way through these wisdom books. Sometimes you just call the wicked, but you're going to find him. Now, doctrinally, it'll be a reference to the, the Antichrist wherever you find him in the context of those passages very easily to determine will always be the tribulation period of the second coming or some aspect to that. It's real easy. Now, inspirationally, it's a picture of whatever you and I go through with wicked people. But let's forget that for the time being and to just focus on, on our thing. Now, all right, there's your Ahab guy. See that, the evil man? All right, let's keep reading. Verse 14. who rejoice to do evil and delight in the frowardness of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and they are froward in their paths, to deliver thee from the strange woman. See that thing? Now there's your Jezebel. Everywhere you go in the wisdom books, you're going to find that two-part component. You're going to find the evil man, which is going to be the Antichrist, and then you're going to find the strange woman, which is going to be uh, Jezebel. And you're going to find it. That's why when you come through Proverbs 2, Proverbs chapter 5, Proverbs chapter 7, uh, those were the places where you find this strange woman wearing the attire of a harlot, seducing some young unsuspecting kid. Now, this unsuspecting kid brings us to the next two kind of people you're going to have uh, in your wisdom books. It's going to be a, you're going to find in your wisdom books, these five books, this is what you're going to find. Doctrinally, every one of these books, deal, and I can just save you a lot of heartache right now trying to figure them out. Doctrinally, right now, all of these books, all of these wisdom books are going to be about three things. It's either going to be the tribulation period, it's going to be either the second coming of Christ, or it's going to be the millennium. And that's why you're going to find, basically, four people in these books. You're going to find an evil man, and that's going to be the Antichrist. You're going to find a strange woman who's likened to a harlot. That's going to be uh, Jezebel, the Roman Catholic Church. The strange man's going to be Ahab. And then you're going to find a wise man and a foolish man. The wise man is going to learn the lessons of Proverbs, Psalms, Song of Sodom, and Ecclesiastes, and Job. 
And they're not going to get hooked up with this strange evil man or this strange woman. The foolish one is going to fall for it hook, line, and sinker. And that's why when you get over to Matthew chapter 25, talking about the tribulation periods, there's ten versions. Five were wise and five were foolish. Your whole Old Testament, from a doctrinal standpoint, breaks down around the strange woman, the uh, strange man, the, uh, the evil man, excuse me, the strange woman, and the wise man, and the foolish man. Every place you go, and it, it's a picture of the nation of Israel who they fall for Baal worship under Ahab and Jezebel in a historical sense, the Antichrist and the religious system of the Roman Catholic Church in a doctrinal sense, and in every case you have a wise man and a foolish man. The wise man figures it out, foolish man doesn't. And you're going to find that when you come into the Thyatira church period, this is why you're introduced to this woman Jezebel, because she now is the religion that has taken over and brings us into the dark ages. And she's typified all the way through your Bible in every aspect laid out for you that you can't miss it. And if you'll just take those basic, simple things, and you just take, I mean, you just basically can go through those wisdom books pretty much determining where you're at. Ecclesiastes might be a little tougher to do, but the rest of them are pretty easy, especially Psalms and, and Proverbs, because they're so descriptive. And they fall either in the, with a strange woman or the, or the foolish woman or the strange man, or they fall in with a wise kid or the, or the foolish person. Uh, it's, uh, it's pretty easy to put all those things together. So um, you want to you wanna look at that. And then back to Revelation chapter 2, notice it says this. Verse 23, I will kill her children with death. Now, doctrinally, that'll be the death in the tribulation period, okay? And we know that in the tribulation period that the, the death comes down and, and the death angel and, and people die and uh, with all the plagues and everything that comes down, and the earth is in darkness. So doctrinally, that will be the tribulation context. But historically, and these things represent our, our, our literal period of church history now, and at, this is the thing you want to remember. Everything in history lines up with everything in the Bible historically. So that may be, in a doctrinal reference, may be dealing with the, the death and the tribulation period and all the blackness that comes in when the sun doesn't shine, but the bottom line is, historically, that's dealing with the black death that swept through Europe in the 12th, 13th century. And when the black death went through Europe around 1400, uh, uh, it was 1433, uh, when it was finished, there wasn't enough, wasn't enough uh, alive people to bury the dead people. And the black death came on because of the fact of God's judgment on the Roman Catholic Church. Well, you'll never hear that in history class. You realize that the only people who did not get the black death during that period of time were the Jews and the Bible-believing Christians? Just like in the tribulation period when all the plagues fall down on everything on planet Earth, it's not going to fall on the Jews who are trying to do what's right and follow God. Now, there wasn't any supernatural thing in, the, in church history, but I'll tell you why, how it happened. I mean, I guess it was a supernatural thing, if you want to put it that way. Because the Old Testament Jews were following the dietary and the cleansing laws out of the book of Leviticus and out of the Old Testament. And they were washing their hands and washing their bodies and washing their hands in running water, as were the New Testament Christians. 
based on the fact that that's what the Old Testament told you is the way to cleanse your flesh in running water. The European Catholics were washing in a bowl or washing in a basin and just transferring the germs. So they got the Black Plague because it was transmitted by communicable uh, ways where the na- nation of Israel and a Bible-believing Christian did not get it to the severity that the rest of them did because they were following the laws of the Bible. And so what happened was because they didn't get it <laughs> and the Roman Catholic Church come back and blamed them for them getting it and killed them because they didn't get it. So it was, in a, but that's what happened. That's what happened. All right, he says down here, uh, uh, verse 24, but I say unto you and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and have not known the depths of Satan as they speak. And we're going to see it here in a little bit that during this time period, this is where all the doctrines begin to get solidified and begin to put into practice. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. And that's why I talked about the depths of Satan. Uh, down here in verse uh, Oh, but you shall hold ready how fast do I come, overcometh, keep my work to the end, power of all nations. Uh, he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's all reference to the millennium. Look down here in verse 28. And I will give unto him uh, the morning star. The morning star. Now we know that in the doctrinal context, that morning star is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that. But when you come back in church history, that morning star uh, won't be, uh, it won't be Christ historically. That morning star there uh, will be uh, John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe translates the first English Bible out of the text of Antioch. Now you've got to remember that there has been no good Bible out out under the old Syriac and the old Latin and the, we're going to see here in a moment the Roman Catholic Church has just about swallowed all of them up. There is no English language when all this starts. The English language developed during this period of time and was still in the development when, uh, when Tyndale wrote his first English translation in about 1250, 12, 12, uh, 1260, 12, somewhere in there. And uh, English language still wasn't developed, so if you ever read a Tyndale's Bible, it's very hard to read English because the English language hadn't got to the point where uh, it didn't do that until about 1600. But what happens is this. John Wycliffe is one of the early reformers, 300 years before the Reformation. He's one of the early reformers, and he translates the first Bible off the manuscript from Antioch in spite of the Roman Catholic Church in the middle of 1200. You know what he's called in church history? The Morning Star, the Reformation. That's his, call, that's his title. He's called the Morning Star. He's the first glimmer of light in the darkness of the Dark Ages that precedes the cracking of the morning with the Reformation. All right, with all that, you need to put those notes in there someplace along those lines. With all that, let's come back here and, uh, and look at this now. We'll have a better thing of it. When we enter into the Dark Ages, and we know that this period we're going to talk about is going to run from about 500 to 1,000, 1,200 someplace in this. As I've already said, this is the darkest period in church history. And it signals the rise of the popes. The world starts. Uh, uh, the word starts uh, being used. Papal pope with Leo II in 440 A.D. Uh, and he lives between 440 and 461. He comes to the throne in uh, 440, and is established by the time that Gregory the Great comes on the scene about 500. 
Gregory the Great is usually given the designation of being the first pope, even though he wasn't. But uh, he's given that designation because that uh, he ushers in this period of time uh, where Rome really, really becomes uh, the, the church that uh, it, the devil wanted it to be. And during this time, the Roman Catholic Church uh, gained so much power uh, that in, real, in reality, Bible Christianity is just almost wiped out. And for the next 1,000 years, from 500 A.D. to 1500, um, Rome runs the world through the political and the religious uh, intrigue uh, with the popes in control. We already talked about how that in 400, Jerome uh, translates the Latin Vulgate, becomes the official Bible for the Roman Catholic Church. We also know from our past studies that the roots of that Bible was origin in Alexandria, Egypt, and it's a corrupt text. All the Western serious, all the Western texts from Syria and Antioch, which would be the old Latin and the old Syriac, are forbidden, and anybody found with them, uh, the Roman Catholic Church destroys everyone they can get their hands on. Anybody found one, I mean, in our day and age, we're worried about uh, uh, gun control, and they're going to take all the guns away and make you uh, private gun owners uh, crooks overnight by passing a law that says if you don't turn your gun in, then it's illegal and you're going to be a crook. Well, imagine if they did that with the Bible. And that's exactly what they did, except uh, if they found you with a gun today, if they ever passed that law, uh, they'd take it away from you and probably put you in jail. Back then, if they found you with a Bible that wasn't lining up with Rome, they killed you for it. It was a capital offense. And uh, they, uh, God's people are murdered by the millions. And of course, this time period is covered very extensively in Fox's Book of Martyrs, which we sell back there in the bookstore. And uh, around 400 A.D., and we need to understand this, how this fits into where we're going. About 400, 440, we start to see uh, the invading hordes come down uh, from Central Europe. And this will be guys like Attila the Hun. And uh, they're Germanic tribes that have grown and gotten powerful. And uh, now they're sweeping through Europe and they're conquering and destroying. And this is why the devil knew that he could not exist because he knew what was going to happen and he knew that as just a political Roman government, he could not exist because Attila the Hun uh, and these guys are going to come down and they're going to sack all of these nations and plunder them and destroy them. And uh, the devil knows that. So the devil had to find a way to survive. And the way that he survived is, is he knew, we've already talked about this, but I'm showing you where it went into effect. He knew that he could not survive as a nation, but he knew you could never wipe out a religion. And so that's why he switched from, from pagan Rome to papal Rome, because even though Rome, the country, the city may be sacked, the religion will carry on. And of course, the Pope is making political alliances with other nations, which makes him much more powerful, as you'll see here in just a moment. In 450... The pagan Roman government collapsed with Attila the Hun and his Germanic hordes. Uh, their central Germany and all of those uh, groups up there uh, were very warlike. Um, it's really uh, basically, if you want to uh, handle on history, uh, Germany, France, England, uh, they call them Normans. Uh, we landed at Normandy, France, World War II. That's where the Normans come from. They call it Anglo-Saxon, Saxony, Germany. Anglo, England, Anglander, uh, that's all the words for it. Uh, you find that most people don't even know this. This is why in Europe there's been a war 
<laughs> every 40, 50 years uh, going all back to this time. And it's been France, Germany, and England uh, who have been the main partakers in it. Russia got into it a couple of times uh, uh, down through there, but it's always been France, Napoleon. He fought, Fran- uh, fought Russia, the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, you had World War I. That was, uh, you know, Germany, France, and uh, England again, and America got in it. But those nations, those Germanic nations, this is why Germany has always been the sore spot in Europe, because of the Attila the Hun and the Germanic nations that are warlike, that they conquer uh, all the other nations. And in our own history, you know, we look at uh, World War II, and that's a fresh as look as probably we could go back. There were Germany. Germany had been defeated in World War I unbelievably. She had been crushed at a place where she had lost her economy. In 1918 and 1919, at the end of World War I, she is run by all the Allied powers. She is forbidden to have an army that can have more than what? 100, 200,000 people. She cannot have an air force. She cannot have a navy other than just a piddly little sailboat on a duck pond someplace. She can't have, they, they thought that they had fixed Germany from ever waging war again because of the de- depravity and the what? Uh, you know, 18 million people killed in World War I? And it was all because of Germany. And Kaiser Wilhelm, he was dethroned. He was taken off, the, off out of Germany. Germany was, was told they had to repay all of the war debt, which was a staggering, you know, in the billions of dollars. She's already bankrupt. And it was the time in the 20s uh, that when the Great Depression hit Europe that uh, it took a billion Reichmarks, that would be a, one Reichmark would be a, a dollar for us, it took a million Reichmarks just to buy a loaf of bread. Inflation was so high. And they stripped Germany of everything. She had no navy. She had no army. She had no air force. She had no anything because they were going to make sure that she never got to the place where she did, again, what she did in World War I. That was 1920. It was 1939 when she invaded Poland, Czechoslovakia, and swept through Europe with the Blitzkrieg. How in the world did in 20 years she undo the Treaty of Versailles? Uh, which was the treaty that they had to sign uh, in Versailles, France, that ended World War I, and they had to pay all the money back. And I'm telling you, it's because of the, what goes on in Europe with these Germanic hordes. You cannot stop them. You cannot stop them. And, of course, Adolf Hitler came in and turned that thing around in less than 20 years and took on the whole world. And in the first four years, I mean, we think about December 7, 1941 is when we got into the war. They were fighting in Europe in 1937, 1938. By the time we got in the war, I mean, uh, all of France was gone. Czechoslovakia, Poland disappeared in 20 minutes. And the whole aspect of Europe was now under the Third Reich. Why? Same thing that you got here. Only this guy's name was Attila. This guy's name was Adolf same concept. People, and I, and, 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 and people don't understand how Europe functions. And because we're Americans and we're so goofy and so tied up in our own little stuff, we see World War I, World War II, and we never make the connection back to Attila the Hun with the Germanic hordes. They have been fighting in Europe every 40, 50 years nation against nation, and that's really how the English language came into being. 
English language is a mixture of, of multiple nations who got together by kicking a fire at each other and taking over their lands. And in a couple hundred years, it's solidified. And that's why it's called Anglo-Saxon. Anglo, England, Saxon, Germany, where Attila came from. So we see even in this, how God's hand is developing everything to bring about an English language and how it develops and how God uses these things. And I, you know, maybe it's boring to you when I tell you these things, but if you don't understand this, then it won't mean anything. You've got to be able to look at the world from a, from a global position and understand why are the things the way they are? What did Attila the Hun in 451 A.D.? What does that mean to where we're at today? It means that that's why you speak English. It means that's why Europe is the way it is. And of course, you know, this is the thing that get lost. Well, in 450, uh, the pagan Roman government, like I said, collapsed with Attila the Hun at a Germanic hordes. He makes one fatal mistake. He does not destroy Rome, for which he lives to pay the price for that. Pope Leo II bought him off with cash, and now this is how it begins to go. And uh, after Pope Leo bought him off with cash, then Pope Leo made a deal with Attila and had Attila defeated at the Battle of Shulam in 451. And this is what begins to happen. The Roman Catholic Church now begins to play the political versus the religious. And boy, she has done this masterfully down through history. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how it all goes. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, a little bit later on, a guy by the name of Clovis, who was, an accessor, uh, who was the successor of Attila the Hun, um, becomes the official arm of the Roman Catholic Church in her holy war against heretics. And remember now, a heretic is anybody who's not a Catholic. By 500 AD, when the Dark Ages begin to come in and Gregory's on the throne, the Roman Catholic Church had swords, shields, and arrows, and armies to help bring in the kingdom of God on this earth. And, but this is typical. This is typical. But when we're done with this study on church history, this is, you can already see where we, we went along really good, and now we're bogging down in it now, boy. I mean, it, it's, there's just so much. I mean, after, you know, the first two periods of church history can be, you know, there's just, you can pretty much stay with a line of thought and, and develop it. But now we're spreading out. Now we're, we're like we're wading through a quagmire here of, of, of political intrigue. And, you know, for the next thousand years, empires rise and fall. Countries and armies and great military leaders come and go. But Rome stays. And Rome always stays in power. Catholic historians. And, you know, I've always thought it was interesting. And these little side notes I always pick up when I'm reading history. The Huns, Attila, Attila, they believed totally contrary to the Roman Catholic Church. But you notice she never tried to kill them, or she never called them heretics. Evidently, the deciding factor of who's a heretic and who isn't depends on how big an army you have. Because <laughs> Rome never gave them any fight and never tried to wipe them out. She just enlisted their power to wipe out Bible believers. Catholic historians tell us she survives because of the fact that she is the church that the gates of hell will not prevail against. But we know better than that. We know she survives because the head of her church has survived 6,000 years of battles. 
And we know that the Bible says that who hath discovered the face of his garments? We have, we have. And we have detailed out how he changes clothes. That old whore survives the same way a chameleon survives a fight between three gorillas, a lion, two elephants, and a water buffalo. She just changes colors and fits in with the scenery. And when it needs to be brown, she turns brown. And when it needs to be green, she turns green. And when it needs to be yellow, she turns yellow. And she just amalgamates in. And of course, this is Revelation chapter 18, where it talks about mother of harlots who dominates the whole world. The whole earth gets seduced by what she does. And she does it very well. She aligns the political side of things with the religious side and then takes the religious side and runs the political to get what she needs to done politically. And then she crawls back out of the political and puts back on her robes and pretends that she's religious again. You see it today if you're paying attention. The Roman Catholic Church made itself to the place where it is the only religion on the face of this planet that is its own nation. You realize that our country sends an ambassador to the Vatican just like we do to France and Germany and and Bolivia and Argentina and England. Now, what other religion on the face of this planet do you know of that a country sends an ambassador to for political endeavors? Only one. And, of course, she 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 is a sovereign nation and she's a sovereign religion. That's why, and most people never figure it out, that's why you don't find anybody saying, you may live in America, you live in Spain, you may live in South America, you live in Paraguay, you may live in Antarctica, you may live in Australia, but you know what? There are no Australian Catholics, there are no Paraguayan Catholics, there are no South American Catholics, there's no North American Catholics, there's only Roman Catholics because they're their own country. And, of course, uh, her political intrigue, and I, I could, I could we- wear your ears off tonight going through the history of Europe and then history of early America and the history of your own time in America. Back in the 60s and the 70s when she actually ran uh, this world. As we speak tonight, and if I, may, I may be wrong on this, but if it's not everyone, it's everyone but one. Uh, I'm thinking it's everyone, but maybe I, I may have slipped up on it and got one in there on me. But every Supreme Court judge we have and every justice we have in the Supreme Court is Roman Catholic. There may be one that's not, but I think they all are. Now, why is that? Why is that? Why is that? Why is it that the Roman Catholic Church can have the scandal that it's got going on right now, not just in this church or that church, we're talking about in countries, whole countries, in Sweden, in France, in, in every country over there in Europe. We're not talking about a scandal of child abuse unparalleled. Why, in our own country, what, two years ago, they paid off the highest uh, deal for uh, child molestation in the, in the billions and billions of dollars in this country. And it's rampant everywhere. And you know what? Nobody says a thing. Well, you get a few squawkers out there, but you know what? They'll be dead by the end of the week. It won't make any difference. She survives. And by 500 A.D., the old whore, Revelation chapter 7 and 18, is marching down through history and tramples the word of God, kills anybody who does not submit to her pagan godless doctrines. The corruption is so great that we could fill volumes on it. 
but time doesn't permit it to do it. When she's attacked for being not being true to the word of God, she plays the political powers and sets them, uh, gets them to wipe out the opposition through their armies. And when then she's attacked for her political games, she puts her, gets on her knees, puts on her beads and her robes and her candle and whines about, let us pray for peace. Boy, you don't see that in any other greater deal than at the end of World War, uh, end of World War II. And of course, the, the Holocaust of the Jews uh, was just part of what the Third Reich was doing, but the Third Reich uh, was put into power by the German Catholic League in Germany in 1933. One of the 12 apostles of Adolf Hitler that I gave you a while back, one of the 12 apostles of Hitler was the last one, von Poppen or whatever his name was, was head of the German Catholic League in Germany in the 1930s. They got Hitler elected as chancellor. And then when Vandenberg died, he took over the whole thing, abolished the chancellorship and took over the whole deal. It was the Catholic Church that put him in power. The Catholic Church wanted him in power because he wanted him to wipe out Russia. And so uh, when he wiped out Russia or tried to wipe out Russia, you know, they were all for him. And the Catholic popes were praying that he would wipe out Russia and end communism, which threatened the Roman Catholic Church. And, of course, along with the deal, the Pope, you never heard the Pope one time, any place, Pope Pius X then, you never heard him one time ever cry out about any of the atrocities that were done to the nation of Israel, the Jews. He never did. You know why? Because back in the 30s and the 40s and even the 50s up to Vatican II, the Catholic Church looked at the Jews as Christ killers and blamed them for the death of Christ, therefore authorized the fact that they should be wiped out. And, of course, at the end of World War II, where did Eichmann go? They found him in, Bel- in Paraguay. Where did uh, Joseph Mengele go, the angel of death from Auschwitz, who's responsible for probably, what, 100 million people uh, killed, not just the Jews? And he, he, he was in Auschwitz. They found him in Paraguay. You got Klaus Barbie, the butcher of lion, lion France. He's down in Paraguay. How did he get down there? How did all the Nazi guys get down there into South America and escape the war trials of Nuremberg? And the only ones that were left were the big guys that uh, couldn't hide. How did Eichmann get down there? How did Klaus Barbie? How did, how, did, how did all of these guys get down there? Well, it came to light years afterwards, and it's been in the Kansas City Star a number of times. There was a documentary on it here not too long ago, and I couldn't believe it. Uh, when they actually stated it, and they actually showed that all of those guys got down to South America, smuggled through a Roman Catholic monastery for monks in southern Germany with forged passport, dressed as priests, and they got smuggled down into South America. Hey, you know what? When they said that on there, everybody just yawned like it was no big deal. See? That's how it works, man. That's exactly how it works. And of course, she... Uh, well, Jezebel gets sets up, boy, and she sets it, and she, she is the female deity. Turn over here to Jeremiah chapter 33. I'll show you this, sweet, sweetie here, and you want to mark this in your Bible at some point.
see here. I'm sorry, Jeremiah 44, my fault. I right, look at it in verse 44, 17. But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her, as they have done, and we and our fathers and kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, for then we have plenty of victuals, uh, and we were well and saw no evil. But since we left off to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her, we have wanted all things that have been consumed by the sword and the famine. And uh, look down here, verse 19. And when they were burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings unto her, we did make her cakes to worship her and pour out drink offerings unto her without our men. And there's your first place where you find the queen of heaven showing up in Baal worship. Now she changes names all the way down through the Bible. Iris, Osiris, she becomes the... Uh, one of the seven wonders of the world when, in Acts chapter 19 with Diana, Diana, the great goddess of the Ephesians, with her temple was one of the seven wonders of the world back in ancient time. And uh, when Constantine comes in and flips the thing around, she becomes Mary, the mother of God. And that's how it works. And now she's called Jezebel. Because Jezebel represents her. All right, during this time period, we find some more councils coming into play. We call it the Council of Sardinia in 343, Council of Constantinople 381, they're on the board up here behind me, the Council of Ephesus 431, the Council of uh, Chal uh, uh, Chaldiran 451, and the Council of Constantinople 553. Now, you don't need to worry about any of these councils. Uh, uh, they all come to the point where they all do the same thing. They're all used to strengthen Rome's position. Whenever she sees she needs to strengthen a position in some area, she calls a council together. That council gets together. She strengthens her position, and she moves on. That's all they are. That's all they are. And we know from the book of Acts that they're never, uh, never good or anything for God or God's people. Verse chapter 2, uh, chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 24, uh, talks about the depths of Satan. And during this period of time, as we come up through these dark ages and a little bit beyond, here's some of the doctrines that are officially set up in the Roman Catholic Church with the dates they go in. Uh, the worship of Mary is firmly established by 431 A.D. Priest dressing different than the laity is, takes place in 596 A.D. The Latin language is adopted as the official language of the Roman Catholic Church in 600 A.D. The kissing of the Pope's ring and his feet are uh, officially put in in 709. The worship of crucifixes and images uh, being added as aids to worship. We saw all this floating around with Constantine's mother, but now it becomes an official doctrine in 788. Holy water mixed with salt, uh, 850 A.D. And I don't have time to tell you why uh, uh, and get into the 
aspect of it is the fact that uh, uh, what water represents as far as blood. And, uh, and when they get rid of the blood of Christ, they make holy water. And uh, they're replacing the blood of Christ with holy water. And so they got to mix the holy water with salt because when they can't get whole blood to put in your body, they put in plasma, and plasma is salt water, see? And that's how they get around that. So it's all fixed in there in some way or the other. And uh, it's, that's why they're always looking for life. Whenever they find water on a planet out there, Wherever they find water out there on the planet someplace and they get excited about it or they think there may be an ocean of water out there, they get really excited. Anybody know why they get excited? Because they know that life always starts in water. See? Life always starts in water, especially salt water. All right. Now we can go a long way with that, going back to the blood of Christ and what it kind of Adam, what he, Adam blood, what he had in his circulatory system before he got the blood, but we won't mess with that tonight. Setting up of St. Joseph, uh, not as aspirin, but as a aid to worship is 890 A.D. The baptism of bells, uh, 965, making them holy. Canonization of dead saints, 995 A.D. Lent and fasting on Friday. That's it. You know, you, that, we just came through the Lent period, and most people don't fully understand how it works, but... You know, uh, Lent takes place, depending on if you add the Sundays or not, Lent, it takes place 40 days before Easter or 46 days before Easter if you count the Sundays. And Lent uh, is a time period that starts with Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is when the Catholic puts a little cross on his head with ashes, and he's supposed to leave that on to it wears off naturally. And so during the period of Lent, which is the 40 days after he puts that on, which brings us up to Easter Sunday, which was last Sunday, um, then uh, he's supposed to be in a place where he is uh, denying himself like Christ did for the 40 days when he was up on the mountaintop there in the wilderness. So uh, in Lent, uh, you're supposed to give up something, typifying that Christ went 40 days without any food or water. So uh, you're supposed to give up something. And like typical Christians that we are, we always give up the thing that we least needed the most anyhow so we can move right on with it. And that's just the way, you know, human nature is. But that's where Lent comes in. Lent comes up to the Holy Days, uh, which is Palm Sunday. And then the week up that week, which I told you Sunday is detailed in your Bible very clearly, brings you right up to Easter, which we now know is Ashtar, the other god of fertility or the queen of heaven that was worshipped. Uh, back in the Bible times, had nothing to do with Bible Christianity. All comes in under Constantine. But they got to make it legit, see? And the way they make it legit is add ceremonial things, add uh, pomp and circumstance, add holy days, add weeks, add this, add that, do this, make some semblance of giving up something for Christ so we look some identification with it, even though it's totally pagan, and that's what we do. And that's what's going on in this part of the Dark Ages. Uh, the mass becomes a sacrifice by 1000 A.D. The celibacy of the priesthood uh, becomes an established fact by 1079. Most people don't know that for almost uh, 500 years, the priests were allowed to marry. Uh, they are not all didn't, but, uh, but uh, they were allowed to. It wasn't until about 1079 uh, uh, or somewhere in there that they, uh, they made that a celibacy a part of the priesthood. We see the celebrating of the rosary 
1090. And that goes back to the Babylonian Phoenician stuff back to 800 BC. That's all that goes back to. Uh, the Inquisition starts in 1184. The Inquisition was the official persecution of the Roman Catholic Church against Bible believers. And um, it had been going on uh, in various ways, but, on none, but not in a, it had not been officially put into practice where it was more organized and localized and really became, you know, production modified, so to speak. And that took place. The sale of indulgences, that is to buy your little scaplicas and the little things that you wear and the things that help you in worship, that comes in 1190 A.D. And I think probably the, uh, the thing that really uh, is really the backbone of the Roman Catholic Church and uh, is the doctrine or the dogma, as they call it, of transubstantiation. And that comes into play around 1219. It had been happening for quite a while, but it becomes an official doctrine in 1200. The transubstantiation is simply um, this concept. When that priest celebrates the Mass, and the Mass is the backbone of the Roman Catholic Church, when he celebrates the Mass, what he does is that they have a wafer, and those little wafers are made by nuns in the... uh, uh, convents, and it's about the, about the size of a quarter, maybe a little bit bigger. And uh, those wafers uh, are made like little cakes. We saw how that they made cakes to the Queen of Heaven back in Jeremiah 44. Well, these are the cakes we're talking about. And they're made by the nuns, and then they're shipped to the Catholic churches. And uh, in their uh, shipping state, they're just little wafers. And uh, when you take the Mass, the uh, Catholic priest holds up that wafer, and he gets a big one, and uh, he gets the big one, and when he blesses the big one, uh, he actually, the, the dog, dogma of transubstantiation, transubstantiate, you're going to trans something from one state to another state, transubstantiation. He actually has the mystical, magical power from God to take that wafer and when he does his little hocus-pocus stuff, that wafer mysteriously, majestly transubstantiates itself into the literal body of Christ. And at that point, he's now holding God in his hand. And that's why, and people don't know this, when you try to witness to a Catholic, one of the first things that you'll say to a Catholic is, have you ever received Christ as your own personal Savior? And of course, his answer is going to be, yeah. So the dumb, stupid Christian at that point thinks, well, wow, he's saved. You know, he received Christ as his own personal Savior. But because they don't know their history and they don't know anything about the Roman Catholic Church, uh, their way of receiving Christ is not the same way we receive Christ. We receive Christ out of the book of Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 10. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, you know, thou shalt be saved. When that Catholic kneels down every Sunday morning and opens his mouth and that priest takes one of those wafers and puts it on his tongue, that priest is putting the body of Christ, the literal body of Christ, on that man's tongue, and that man is closing his mouth and swallowing and eating it, that's when he receives Christ. So his concept of receiving Christ is not the same as our concept of receiving Christ. Then the other aspect of transubstantiation is the, is the wine. And uh, they take the wine, which is literal fermented wine, and a priest, again, has the power, mystical, magical power from God to transubstantiate that into the literal blood of Christ. 
So you have the two key components in the Roman Catholic Church which make up the uh, aspect in the biblical sense of receiving Christ. You have the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. They just don't administer it the same way. Of course, the Catholic Church, you get to take the wafer, but the priest don't want to get to drink the wine. He's the winner in that one. We don't have enough to go around for everybody. Uh, you never get to drink it, not very often anyhow. But the bottom line is simply this. Let's talk about this for a moment. Let me show you what we're talking about. Take, come back to Psalms chapter 16. Psalms chapter 16. All right, look at verse uh, 1. Now, uh, this is talking about the Old Testament when Israel's caught up into Baal worship. And uh, look at verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Now watch it very carefully. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Watch it. Their drink offerings of blood. See that thing? Will I not offer nor take up the names into my lips? Now what you've got back there in Baal worship is simply this. Now, this is what I've tried to explain to you as we've come through. When Constantine came into power, he takes Easter. We celebrated it two days ago. And he tries to make it connected to the Passover, which it never was, never could be, never shall be. Easter is not a Christian name in any way, shape, or form. Easter is Ashtar, the god of fertility. But what he does is he takes that concept of Easter, a pagan holiday, has nothing to do with Christ or God or the Bible, and then he brings it into Christianity, adds to it all the addendments that make it look like it's something to do now with Christ and Christianity. Does the same thing with Christmas. We talked about Christmas, December 25th, Baal's birthday, the sun god. Brings it in, makes it the birthday of Christ. All of these things are coming in. Baal worship, Baal worship is a worship of the sun god, and connected with it is human sacrifice. And when Baal worship was at its highest point, and you see it back in the Old Testament, what they did was this. When they offered a human sacrifice, and many times it was many human sacrifices, part of the worship of Baal was to drink the victim's blood and to eat their body. And that's why our word for cannibal, canna, canna means meat, Cannibal, cannibal, cannibal. In other words, at the end of the word cannibal is the word bale, because bale worships were cannibals. They ate human flesh and they drank human blood. That was part of bale worship in the Old Testament. They offered up human sacrifices to the sun god. They, uh, they, they, they drank their blood and they ate their bodies as a part of the religious system. Well, 
that may work before you had, you know, television and Fox News and all of those places in the Old Testament where people were pretty stupid and just fell along with those things. But the devil knew that if he wanted to get Baal worship to survive, he was never going to be able to get that to go into when people got modernized, you know, and, 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 and watched all the different things and got all educated. So what he wants to do is preserve Baal worship because that's his religion. So he brings it through with Easter, Christmas, and all the other stuff, adds all the garbage here, and then the devil knew that he could never get any human being from, from 1,000 on, uh, 400 on, to eat any human body and kill people. Who would ever do that? I mean, we don't like Jehovah Witnesses because they knock on our door. What would we think of a church that ate real people up on the weekends? That would not work very well. So what we'll do is we'll still do it, but instead of eating real people, we'll just make it a spiritual thing and we'll eat the body of Jesus and drink his blood. Nothing's changed. Nothing has changed at all. And of course, people are too stupid, too naive, don't have any understanding of history to be able to see that. And by 1220, they add to that the adoration of the wafer. And uh, all this stuff has to do with the pagan Baal worship that has turned itself into all of the stuff that uh, has brought the Roman Catholic Church looking like it is the world religion when in, when in absolutely it is absolutely nothing but uh, Old Testament Baal worship. Turn back to Judges. Let me show you something here. Pick it up in uh, Judges chapter 17. Now, you want to see a picture in modern-day Christianity today? I'm going to show you one. I'm going to show you one. Now, this is good stuff here. This is good stuff. All right, pick it up in verse 1. Now, there was a man of Mount Ephraim whose name was Micah. Now, Ephraim should strike your imagination if you know anything about the Bible because Ephraim was one of the tribes who always kept getting in trouble with Baal worship. The other one was Dan. In fact, when you go over in, in Revelation chapter 7 and 14, you know the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. You don't find 12,000 from Dan and you, don't 12, you do not find 12,000 from Ephraim. They're deep in Baal worship. He brings up the two half-tribes to make up their, their difference. Uh, but those are little things you catch when you get used to the Bible a little bit. And uh, his name is Micah. And he said unto his mother, uh, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from thee, about which thou cursest, good Christian lady, and speaketh uh, of also in mine ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. As mother said, blessed be thou the Lord, my son. Oh, isn't that a modern Christian person right there? Blessed the Lord, my God, my son, out of one mouth and cursing and getting in his ear in the other. I love it. Times never change. 
So he stole her money. He confesses, and she curses and gets mad about it. And she stays on him, because that's what it means there when it says, which thou speakest also in mine ears. Notice it's both ears. So he fesses up and says, I took it. She says, blessed be the name of the Lord, my son. Watch this. And when he had restored the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I will wholly dedicate the silver unto the Lord from my hand for my son to make a graven image and a molten uh, image. Now, therefore, I will restore it unto thee. You see what she just did? She talked about restoring it to God out of one hand, but built a graven image and a molten image out of, with the other hand. Now, that's modern-day Christianity. We talk about God, but we, we worship graven images. See that thing? Now, there's somebody that's a nation of Israel that knows the Ten Commandments, and it's not down very far in the list. Thou shalt have no other God before me. Here, out of one side of her mouth, she's saying, Blessed be the Lord God, I'm going to dedicate it to the Lord, and then, like she's going to do something, and then she builds a molten image and a graven image. Violation of the law. That's exactly what modern-day Roman Catholicism is, and very frankly, most of Christianity is. We talk about God, but we worship the images. Now watch this. Yet he restored the money unto his mother, and his mother took the 200 shekels of silver and gave it to the founder who made thereof a graven image and a molten image, and they were, uh, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Go back here. I must have read this wrong. And when he had, verse 3, and when he had restored the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I holy, I holy, I had holy, I had holy. You know what holy means? Huh? All of it. I have wholly dedicated the silver unto the Lord my hand for my son. And yet he restored the money into his husband and his mother took 200 shekels. <laughs> God, I love it. <laughs> We're missing 900 shekels here someplace. <laughs> Boy, her definition of holy and God's definition of holy are two different holies. That's us. You got to get this stuff down, kid. You don't want to just come here tonight and miss all this. And the man Micah had a house of gods. Yes, he did. And made an ephod and a teraphim and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. Ah. A younger man is now his priest. And in those days, there was no king in Israel, obviously, but every man did that was right in his own eyes. And there was a young man out of Bethlehem, Judea, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed out of the city from Bethlehem, Judea, to sojourn where he could find a place, and he came to Mount Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. And Micah said unto him, Whence comest thou? And he said unto him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem, Judea, and I go to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said unto him, Dwell with me. Ah, Now notice, he told you, you saw up here that this guy was a young man in verse 7, okay? He's a young man, so he's younger than Micah. And Micah said unto him, Whence cometh thou? And he said, I came, I am a Levite of Bethlehem, Judea, and I go to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said unto him, Dwell with me. Here it comes. And be to me a father and a priest now, how can he be a father if he's younger? Because they had fathers back then in Baal worship, just like they got them today. They had young men who were called father, 
who were preached to older men. See what you got? Now watch this. And I will give thee ten shekels of silver by the ear and a suit of apparel. Oh, he gets a special suit of clothes to be this father who's a priest. Wonder what that looked like. Think it was camouflaged? <laughs> and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the younger man was also to him one of his sons. See that thing? Now there's a younger man in Baal worship going to an older man, and the older man who has a house of gods, who worships images, who talks about God in the Bible sense, but worships him in the Baal worship sense, wants a priest that will be a father to him to run his house of gods. You know what you got right there? Oh, we're not done yet. Hang on. And the Levite, verse 11, was content to dwell with a man, and the young man was unto him as one of his sons. And Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. And Micah said, Now I know, now know I, that the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite to my priest. You see that thing? This thing is absolutely a hundred million miles from what God laid it down to be in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and Exodus. But who cares? <laughs> now watch this. Chapter 18, verse 1. And in those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites. Ah, there's our other bad group. Two bad groups together. The Danites now with the Ephraimites. Oh, that's going to be a good little thing up here. Sought them an inheritance to dwell in, for unto that day all their inheritance had not fallen unto them among the tribes of Israel. So they come on down through here and, uh, oh, let's just read it. And the children of Dan sent of their family five men from their coast, men of valor, of Zorah, from Istakol, to spy out the lands and to search it. And they said unto them, go search the land where they come to Mount Ephraim. Ah, here it comes, to the house of Micah. Ha, 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 They lodged there. And when they were by the house of Micah, they knew the voice of the young man, the Levite. Oh, oh yes, he's out of my parish. I know who he is. Perish the thought. Here we are. And they turned in thither and said unto him, Who brought thee hither? And what makest thou in this place? And what hast thou here? Who? And he said unto them, Thus and thus dealeth Micah with me. He tells them the story. And he hath hired me, <laughs> and I am his priest. And they said unto him, Ask counsel, we pray thee of God, that we may know whether our way which we go shall be prosperous. And the priest said unto them, go in peace. Oh, there's where it comes from. There's where it starts. My, my, my. I thought that. There's where it starts. There's where it starts. Go with God, my son. There it starts. Go in peace before the Lord. Your way wherein you go. So the five men depart down there. Well, they come on. We've got to jump ahead here. And uh, they pick it up in verse 14. Then answered the five men that went to spy out the country of Laish, that's where they went after the left here, and said to their brethren, Do you know that there is in these houses an ephod, a teraphim, and a graven image, and a molten image? Now therefore consider what we have to do. See, those are all the things they worship. An ephod is like a t-shirt on a pole. A teraphim is a large image. A graven is carved, wood or stone, and molten is poured through hot silver or gold. That's 
want to put those in there. You probably need those some point in time. And they turned hither, and they came uh, uh, to the house of the young man, the Levite, even to the house of Micah, and saluted him. Oh, I wonder how they did that. Maybe it was, I don't know. Of the 600 men appointed with their weapons of war. See, they're religious, but they got their armed army with them, don't they, huh? wonder where that all comes in. And they were children of Dan, stood by the entering of the gate. And the five men that went to spy out the land went up and came in thither and took the graven image, the ephod, the teraphim, and the molten image. And the priest stood at the entering of the gate with 600 men that were appointed with weapons of war. These went into Micah's house oh, and fetched the carved image, the ephod, the teraphim, the molten image. Then said the priest unto them, What do ye? And they said unto him, Hold thy peace. Lay thy hand upon thy mouth and go with us. And be to us a father and a priest. It is better for thee to be a priest unto a house of one man or that to be a priest unto a tribe of the family in Israel. And the priest's heart was glad. He got promoted. He went from priest to archbishop and just couple of short days. And the priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod and the teraphim and the graven images and went in the midst of the people. And they turned and departed and put the little ones and the cattle and the carriages before them. And they were a good way from the house of Micah. The men that were in the house near Micah's house were gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. And they cried unto the children of Dan, and they turned their faces and said unto Micah, What aileth thee, that thou comest with such a company? And they said, Ye have taken away my gods, which I made, and the priest. And ye have gone away, and what more have I? They stole his religion. And you ask me, what aileth me? And the children of Dan said unto him, Let not thy voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows run upon thee. Thou lose thy life with the lives of the household. Now you see what you got there? That's the Baal worship in Judges. We're not, even into the, we're not even into King of David yet. Baal worship was rampant, and Baal worship was younger men who were priests and fathers who wore a special suit of clothes, who took over and watched over the house with carved images and everything in it that was the house of their gods all the way back in the time of Judges. Baal worship has worked its way through from all the way back to the early time with Babylon and Genesis chapter 10 and before, right up to it. That's why it's so important to see and understand what takes place, what takes place when Constantine comes in and switches it from pagan to papal. Everything that they were doing back there is now in full force by 1000 A.D., Except now, instead of eating and drinking human sacrifices and drinking their blood, we're doing it, the body of Christ and his blood. We've changed it all from the pagan side for the, to the Babylonian, to the Chaldean, all into the Christian side. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. And that's why when you come into the Thyatira church period here, you're coming to the place where everything now has been solidified. Rome now is in power. She's on her way from 500 to 1,000 to run the world. She's now got politically aligned. She's got the army she needs to keep the Bible believers under control. She's got everything that she needs. Her religion now is a worldwide thing through nations. 
but it's nothing more than the Baal worship in the Old Testament. Well, let's hold up there, and like I said, once we get into this, we'll, we'll see next time what happens and what this leads to within the, within the Roman Catholic Church itself. So it'll be, we move on through this thing here, so...